Hello and welcome to Fans, a podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things West Ham is a man of many talents, but most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, he's one third of the best football podcast in the world. Quickly, Kevin, will he score? It's the happy hammer himself, Chris Skull. Chris, how are you, mate? Yeah, it's good, Sachin. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. pleasure to be here. Well, and uh, well, it's it's a pleasure to have you on, and it's also a pleasure to meet you where we're meeting. Um, do you want to do you want to say where yeah, we are? This is about a hundred meters from my house, so it couldn't be more convenient. <laughs> personally, it's a great local pub, the Duke in Wanstead. Fantastic. Uh, Ronnie Finch is the landlord. He's kindly let us into a very tight corner of the beer garden. Yes, indeed. Uh, lovely. I should thank Ronnie. Yeah, who we've been. Um, liaising with to come here um i've got to be honest if ronnie's listening um there's been military invasions of middle eastern countries which have proven less complicated <laughs> to organize than being in this pub it's been a bit tricky but we finally finally arranged it and it's so crazy for me to be here i, I think i've told you this or, well i have told you this already but um so to go right back to start when i started this podcast it was always my aim to meet as many people i was doing this podcast with as possible I was, it's always nice to do these things face to face um, the first two I've done with Matt Jones and Tim Stillman, both been absolutely brilliant, but those have been via Zoom. But Chris was up for meeting, which was great. So um, I said to him, let me know a pub you'd like to meet. I will have a drink and a, and a chat. And my jaw fell on the on the floor when you um, messaged me the Duke's address, because this is the pub I record my other podcast in. Is this thing <laughs> on with my very good friend, Lindsay Bowers? Incredible coincidence. Yeah. Um, basically, all the cool people live in one state. That's what I discovered. <laughs> Not me, though. I live in deepest, darkest Beckenham. Um but yeah, crazy coincidence. So um, yeah, I'm back. I know this pub really well. I'm in the beer garden. I did uh, one one episode with Laura Kirk, uh, who may well be listening to this, but all the others were just inside at the big table opposite the toilets. Um, so yeah, crazy. We're in, back in the beer garden. It's not raining. Yeah. This is the so third good. time I've been in a pub you since saying, March. Yeah. It's so good to be outside. Every time I come in a pub now, it's, I just think, what you know? this is life. This is living. We're back. We're back, sit baby. Sit here and talk about football. <laughs> wow. Talk about football and have a drink. What have you got? You've got a pint over you now. Yeah. And pint of Moretti. I've got a bottle of Peroni. So yeah, we're drinking. It's a Friday afternoon, which is like what second best time to drink? Maybe the best. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe a Saturday. I can't remember know. anymore. I know. Yeah. You know the one thing you've got a kid. I've got a kid. The one thing I realise when you get to our age, sort of mid late thirties, and you have a children, the one thing you never do. I don't know if you do anymore. Is go drinking on a Saturday night. Yeah. I'm, Forget that. I'm drunk. No on chance. Sat- yeah, I'm drunk on a Saturday night for about fifteen years. No Saturday joke. nights are Sunday nights. Like I have two <laughs> Sunday nights in a row a weekend. Yeah, a third, you realise how important Thursday nights are now. Like my mates who had kids would only go out on a Thursday <laughs> night. I used to go, God, Friday, Saturday. Now I'm that guy. Yeah, yeah. I never go out on Thursdays, and even then, it's just like a quick beer after work that can escalate. Yeah, I don't plan things anymore either. Yeah, you're right. Thursdays are the new Friday. Yeah, yeah. it's the one night you let out. Uh, brilliant, Chris. Really fra- appreciate you being on. We're going to have a good chat about. Uh, your time being a West Ham fan, which is ongoing, obviously. Hasn't ended. Hasn't <laughs> well, ended. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, before we do that, I want to talk about quickly, Kevin. Um, I said in the intro, the, the best little podcast in the world. I, I think that's certainly my favourite. Um, for me, I think it's two reasons why it's so great. I should say you've done six series. Number seven's coming out soon. You've yeah, tweeted out for October. Yeah, really exciting for us, quickly, Kevin fans. For me, it's two reasons why it's great. First of all is the content. So I'm maybe a bit biased because it's a decade I grew up watching football in, but I think the 90s is the greatest decade for football for two reasons. Well, the main reason is it's kind of a bridge. So you've got, you've got the best of both worlds. So you've got, you've got the great stories and the great characters that you had sort of in the 70s and the 80s. And then you've got the sort of sexy foreign football invasion. So on one hand, you've got John Sitton 
calling out Leighton Orient players for a fight on Club for yeah. a Fiver, and then you've also got Dennis Burkamp. <laughs> so you've just got that brilliant mix. I don't think any other decade has. Yeah. Uh, but the other th- reason is, I think it's the chemistry between you, Josh, and Michael. Um, I think you complement each other so well. I'm just curious how confident you were that you three would work so well together. Had you worked on anything previously? We never. We were mates, but we never worked on anything. Yeah. But I think the great thing about Quickly Kevin is these are conversations we would have anyway. Yeah. So it, like, although it is a podcast and we are technically broadcasting, this is the stuff that makes us laugh as mates. Yeah. And they're like, we've got that kind of personal relationship between ourselves. But we're so flat, like you say, we're fascinated by this era as much as anyone. I think that's why it's just really clicked with listeners because we are, you know, they know what it's like to chat to their mates about this stuff. And it like it's conversations we've all probably had in the past, but to hear, you know, to hear some someone else maybe dive into these subject matters is just it just makes for good podcast. Yeah. It's, and it's such a pleasure. It's so easy. It's great. It's kind of like being in a watching. A, I've just got into Queen. This is gonna sound weird. But the band, uh, yeah, the band. The <laughs> I kind of was aware of Queen, but like I never really got into it. And I've just suddenly I do this occasionally. I'll just find a subject matter. It used to be the Mafia a few years ago, yeah. and then like Nazis. But every kind of two years, I will just dive into a subject, become obsessed with it, and I've become obsessed with Queen. And you realise like those the personalities in, within Queen and the kind of the like I don't know. I don't compare quickly Kevin to Queen, but there's something about that chemistry yeah. amongst them, and it's like they're they're, they're genius. Well, I'm not saying we're geniuses, but that kind of <laughs> friendship and like like it's like being in a band. I was watching this about Queen, yeah. and I was thinking, this is what quickly Kevin. This is what quickly Kevin's like. You know, you, an album is like like kind of the. Uh, like a series of the podcast and you've got live shows on top yeah, and you yeah. know you're friends but at the same time you're in a business and it's like wow I kind of really it, like podcasting is the new rock and roll Wait, it's been say. said before yeah but it, I think it might be true well I was going to say uh, you were very much the most Salah Bobby Firmino and Sadio Mane <laughs> of football podcasting well, I mean, that's how great you are what is what are their uh, attributes that are similar to mine uh, well, I'd say you're the Firmino you're sort of yeah. the man who links everything together yeah Josh Josh is very much Mo because of the hair they're both yeah, similar yeah, hair yeah. and that leaves Michael as Sadio which I, I don't think is any, yeah. I think he's more person. Jordan Henderson he's just Michael, kind of in the it? middle pulling the strings yeah like going about his business and uh, he will lift the trophy <laughs> very much <laughs> He will insist on that. <laughs> exactly. Um, I just want there's there's one. I've sort of sort of you've had so many great guests. You have a sort of mix of obviously ex footballers mm. and brilliant comedians on there. And I'm and I'm wondering if there's if there's a dream guest. He may even be yeah. appearing on on series seven that you've been aiming for. And I ask that because there's somebody I would love to hear on quickly, cool. Kevin. And I wonder if you've tried to get him. Uh, well, I'll tell you who the dream guest is Go first. On. It that is uh, Danny Baker. Oh, I not what I thought. Danny you Baker for me just like he sums up '90s football. He yeah. is for he's for me like. When I think about that era, I think about own goals and gaffs, own goals and gaffs two, three, right hammerings, all those videos I used to watch so religiously. And of course, you know, in tonally, I think he is such a massive inspiration for Quickly Kevin from his radio shows. So he get he got the fan experience probably, mm. like in a way before fantasy football did really. Danny Baker mm. is the ultimate kind of commentator on nineties football for me. And you know, despite him being a Millwall fan, I would absolutely love to have him on. I just think he's got such a great yeah. kind of eye for what's funny about that era, and I, I would love to have him on so much. If well, he's listening, please get in touch. Yeah. We did get we got in touch with him a while ago, but he was I think he was doing a speaking tour or something, so it didn't quite line up. But maybe well, we'll go back again. From the BBC, one of the two. yeah. <laughs> well, he said, you know, hopefully he's got some time he could dedicate to us now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say Des Lynham. He just seems like yeah. the perfect quickly Kevin guest. We had we got Des Lynham's address and we wrote to him, but yeah. we didn't hear back. I think he's just kind of he's enjoying his retirement now. 
Well, I can testify to this because uh, so April 2019, two Aprils ago, um, I covered Brighton v Man City in the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley. It's a very boring game. City mm. won one nil, and in the match day program, Des had written a piece because uh, he's a Brighton fan about his sort of life sporting Brighton and it's sort of the first thing I'd seen from Des for about 15 years so I was like he's still around he's still doing yeah. stuff and I knew the Brighton press officer I'd, oh I do know the Brighton press officer quite well so I said to him look have you got a number because obviously they helped put the programme together yeah. I think. so I said have you got a number for Des uh, he says well I'm, I can get in touch with him on your behalf and I said look if you can just let him know I'd love to do a sit down interview it'd be amazing so only fast forward about a month I'm sitting in my garden having a drink and the phone rings it's a number I don't recognise and pick up it's a woman who says hi I'm, i can't remember her name i'm des lynham's agent i was like oh, fuck, it's on it's on uh and she said des isn't doing interviews yeah. uh yeah as you say he sort of slipped into retirement he just doesn't want to do anything anymore yeah yeah he's happy living his very quiet life fair enough yeah you know he's got a body of work there he's closed the book on it fair yeah, enough absolutely fair enough but no it'd be it'd be my dream quickly kevin kest um but yeah really look forward to series seven so say again when does it start uh 5th of october on all your podcast platforms get on it if you haven't listened to it already if you're 35 or older you should be listening to it and if you're 35 or younger okay you won't get most of the references but listen to it because anyway, <laughs> uh, it's great it's really good right let's get on to your uh, your life as a west ham fan so we'll we'll go right back to start and and learn about uh, how why and when you became a west ham fan but the first thing i wanted to ask you is um is about a specific date saturday the 28th of october 2000 do you know why that's a significant date in West Ham's history? Would that have been the day we beat Bradford 5-4? No. Okay. It's not. Uh, it was actually, I don't think it's a particularly uh, eventful or memorable game. You beat Newcastle 1-0 Upton Park. Freddie Canute scored. But it was significant because it was the last time Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, oh. Michael Carrick and Joe Cole oh. played together. Uh, wow. Lampard went to uh, Leeds a couple of weeks later, or a month later, I think. Um, so obviously a lot is made of that generation that Harry read in that pad and I was just I'm really curious what your memories of watching them were at that time and whether you knew and your fellow West Ham fans knew all four of those would go on to have the careers they did it's it's a tricky one to answer because this is going to sound mad but at the time I wasn't that bothered about a selling players like Rio Ferdinand because as a fan so in 2000 I was 17 years old and over the preceding three or four years, we'd seen, we'd won the FA Youth Cup like in 99. We'd seen Rio come through, Frank, all those great players you named. And you just assumed it was a conveyor belt of talent that would never end. Mm. We were on such a running form of those players coming through. It was happening so consistently that the idea of selling one was kind of fine because you always imagined that more would be coming along later on. And, you know, it, it never occurred to me that this was a freak occurrence, a once-in-a-century thing that mm. was happening before our eyes. And that actually the selling of Rio Ferdinand was the beginning of the end for that generation because they all eventually left. All those names went. Yeah. And they've all gone on to hit the very pinnacle of professional football. And they could have done it for West Ham. I think Arsene Wenger, didn't, there's a quote from Arsene Wenger that I've never been able to source, but people say, like, Arsene Wenger said, if they'd have kept that team together, West Ham would have won the Premier League like to daydream about that sometime but I think you know the reality of Premier League football especially in that era when you get to the 2000s is clubs like West Ham weren't allowed to keep great players like mm -hmm. that together by then money had changed and the, the, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer whereas maybe you know you had like Leeds winning the, the Premier League or the, the first division in the early 90s but by the end of the 90s it was a closed club yeah. by then and there was so much power it like in Leeds, like a team like Leeds, 
to be able to just scoop up, play like, was it 18 million for Rio yeah, Ferdinand? Yeah, and after that, the golf was just too big. We just yeah. couldn't compete. Yeah. Well, Terry Brown was our chairman who made his money with a caravan site. He ran a caravan site. Tells you, I mean, a Premier League. Yeah. What are we going to do? How can we compete with that? Nine years away from like Sheikh Mansour rocking <laughs> yeah, up Sheikh with Mansour. the wealth of an entire nation. Terry Brown <laughs> was running a caravan site. And Peter Ridsdale's at Leeds. And have you heard, uh, there's this apocryphal story. <laughs> I really hope it's true. But, um, when Seth Johnson was negotiating his contract at Leeds. This. Yeah, guys, a great Have story. you heard this story? I think, I think it's the same one. Uh, the, so Seth Johnson, went with the, I think it was a Derby. Was he a Derby? He and was, Leeds yeah. put in a bid. And he goes to Peter Ridsdale and his agent's going, look, if we get 10 grand a week here, like we are, we are laughing. And he walks into the office and Peter Ridsdale goes, look, Seth, you're a great player and I'm not paying you a penny less than 30 grand a week. <laughs> That's go, the same story. All right. It, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those kind of, this is the moment everyone realised yeah. these were fucked. Like stories like, <laughs> yeah. you can't run a football club yeah. like that. And it's like the one about his yeah. goldfish, they cost like a Yeah, yeah, this goldfish. Yeah. Remind, meanwhile, Terry Brown's running a caravan park. Yeah. And that's the, where the money's being made. Yeah. So it's just like West Ham at that time, we just couldn't, we were still amateurish. Five years, like a couple of years, I think we still had our, our merchandise operation was run out of a static caravan in front of the main stand at West Ham. Like two years before we sold Rio Ferdinand. <laughs> so like how... Who, we still we were nineties well up to like two thousand one. <laughs> a remarkable time, really. You must have loved Sport West Ham in the early noughties, given they were essentially still a nineties team. <laughs> yeah, um, well, the, the thing about yeah. like how we had Harry Redknapp, which is you know just rock and roll. It was yeah. so rock and roll. Yeah. That time, that time, you know, wheeling, dealing, like there's so many stories out of that era, like playing a fan in a preseason friendly because yeah, yeah. he was having a go at him, and then the fan scored a goal, but it was disallowed because he was offside. Yeah. Joey Bo- uh, Beecham, Beecham, I can never remember how to pronounce it. There's so many weird, mad things happening yeah. in West Ham. It's like, it's a, a, what a roller coaster. Well, we'll come on to the Redknapp era specifically and some of the stories around yeah. it in a second, just to go back to that generation. So, I mean, all the hype seems to be around Joe Cole. I remember hearing the stories when I was at school about this kid that West Ham had. He was like beating 11 players in five-a-side games and backheeling into the net. Um, but the one that always really interested me was Ferdinand. He just sounded incredibly exotic, like a centre-back who could play in midfield and was amazing. And I'm sure I was hearing stories about him before he made his debut, which, incidentally, I did uh, do a bit of research on, was in the very last game of the 95-96 season, which was a one or joy Sheffield Wednesday. Were you hearing much about Ferdinand before he broke into the team? And if he did, was, would he live up to the expectation? I remember... Well, obviously he did, but did he live... Immediately, was he sort of hitting heights that you thought he was going to... I mean, my only news from the youth team would garnered from programs back then. So, like, Rio Ferdinand would be written about a lot, and we had this habit of West Ham, which the Joe Cole was probably the worst um, story of this. That on match day, we would make a massive deal about kids. Like, talk about the piling on of pressure. Yeah. Like, so Joe Cole, for example, he had to sign his contract on the pitch at halftime in a game, and the match day announcer went, "You'll be able to tell your grandkids you saw this." <laughs> You're like, these kids, 16, 17, <laughs> the pressure we were lumping on these kids. And I think, you know, Rio had all that lumped on him too. So when he started playing, I, I don't know how old he was, probably 17, 18. Mm. He came in early. The, pre- the pressure was on and you were really aware of him. And I remember with Frank Lampard coming on when he made his debut. I remember he made his debut against Coventry. And at the same time that he was coming on, Gordon Strachan was also coming on for Coventry. And the match day announcers had another thing like, this is a very special player making his debut West Ham, Frank Lampard. Like... So, you know, we were really proud of the academy, as we've always been, but we lumped on the pressure as well. So fans were really aware that these are ones to watch. 
But also, it kind of it kind of works both ways because West Ham fans are insanely proud of of our academy players, and they are treated to a with a different standard to mm. everybody else. So, like players like like Rio and Frank, the, the, the fans want them to do well. Like they want a, West Ham fans always want academy players to do well. So it's just like there is such a, a weird kind of bond between them. But yeah, go back to Rio. You always knew he was special. Yeah. And when you grown up, and like some of the centre backs when I first started going were like Colin Foster, and like. These are not silky smooth central <laughs> yeah, defenders. Yeah. This is like a brutish era. Like Julian Dix won our player of the year every year, not for his defending, but because he was a nutter. Yeah. And he also like could smash a goal in from 30 yards. So we weren't used to cultured football whatsoever. So when you get a set an 18 year old centre back come in and actually he's putting his foot on the ball and dribbling it past a forward to move the ball into midfield, you it's like going from black and white to colour yeah. it's like a whole new world but I, th- I think it was like that for all football fans I mean at that time at Liverpool we had what Mark Wright and Neil Ruddock I mean Wright was okay but I mean that, as soon as you saw Ferdinand you thought this feels very different and it sort of <laughs> yeah. still is in a way England haven't really produced a centre-back like him since I just no. think he was an extraordinary sort of almost one-off English footballer but do you know what it is with the Fer- Ferdinands and I, would, like, I was going to say this about Anton but it's equally true of Rio the confidence they have, like those two brothers, and I've been fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with them, is just like, it is electric, their confidence. And it actually brings something out of you too. Like the way they walk around, the way they mm. carry themselves. And you can tell from the like Rio's punditry now and just the way he's always carried himself for his career. He has so much confidence in his ability. They, those two brothers are absolutely bulletproof. Something They had some mental ability to just overcome the odds in any situation and always have confidence in their own ability. And that's why I think Rio was so gifted and able to kind of dribble the ball out of defence when no one else was really doing it because he had so much confidence. Mm. And that goes right down to like his physicality. When you watch Rio Ferdinand walk into a room, he puffs his chest out, he's got his back straight. Like No wonder he went to United and won everything because he is like a perfect United player. Mm. There's something in his brain there's something like, yeah, in the chemical makeup of Rio Ferdinand and Anton as well that just makes them supremely conf- like confident human beings and mm. able to to kind of withstand pressures that we can only can't really understand. And that's what kind of pushed him on and drove him to achieve mm. all these great things. He, he was an amazing footballer, but also he had the mental kind of yeah framework to be able to deal with everything that top flight football could throw at you. Yeah. Well, we'll come on to Anton Ferdinand later. Yeah. Um, in your in your in the eleven that you've done for mm. us, which is quite an unusual, interesting eleven. Um, before we sort of move on from West Ham youngsters of that era, Scott Cannon, what have happened to him? <laughs> Such a good clip. <laughs> the best, isn't it? I think that's in my top five favourite football clips. And that, that, I, I mean, I always think it's really important that football clubs try like engage a fan base as much as possible and open up a conversation. But that's what happens when you do, <laughs> like. Football, like we football fans, don't know as much as the people in the game. That is just like we like to believe yeah. we do. Was he good though? I have no idea. Like yeah. I know he was in that, um, he was in that FA Youth Cup t- side around that around that time. But there was also other no, like Scott Cannon. I didn't hear about him as much as someone like Lee Boylan or Matty Holland who went mm. on to play do well at Ipswich. I wasn't aware of him. But then like Frank Lam- Frank Lampard always had that pressure like that and that kind of rumoured nepotism that he was only in the team because of his uncle and his dad that was all you were always aware of that but I mean look at him it's Harry and I like yeah. it's such a perfect Harry and that's perfect answer There's, I think he says um, there'll, there'll be no comparison to what Frank Lampard achieves in the game versus what Scotty Cannon did yeah. Scotty Cannon what 30 non-league appearances Frank Lampard 
every trophy in the world. And I've just seen some pictures of him on a speedboat with Christine Blakely. So <laughs> worked out well. <laughs> yeah. He's doing all right. Yeah. And spending shitloads of money as Chelsea yeah. managers as well, yeah. Uh, right, let's go back to the very start then. Um, how, why, when did Chris Scull become a West Ham fan? It's one of those family things I'm sure many listeners will be aware of. Like, There was never a choice in it for me. It was always going to be West Ham. My uncle and my dad's side of the family are all big West Ham fans. And my mum's side, my mum's dad... Um, lived in Forest Gate uh, and Manor Park. So, like, all my family's from around there. It was always West Ham. My dad was probably, on my dad's side, my dad was probably less of a fan of all that. His twin brother was a massive West Ham fan. Went to the 1980 FA Cup final. Once showed me the hat he wore on the day, which was blood, covered in blood, because he said someone threw a bottle at him (laughs) afterwards. Um, But it was always on the card to me to support West Ham. I became, it really started probably 91, 90. By 92, I was just completely addicted. And that 92, 93 season, we'd got relegated in 92 Mm. and then came up 92, 93, um, finished in second place. And I was just addicted to that that team. Uh, Even people like David Speedy, we had Clive Allen, like like Julian Dix in there, Steve Potts, Luda McCloskoe, just got addicted to it. And I was just, we were on TV a lot because we were in the second division and ITV had some bizarre, had the rights. We were just on, we were on every Sunday almost, we were on t- uh, ITV. So just watching every game and then I just pressured my uncle and my dad and eventually got to go to a game and that was it. Just yeah. walking out Upton Park, like that old ramshackle stadium, coming up, seeing the green, amazing turf and the smell of like cigars and cigarettes blowing across the terraces and hearing swearing when you're like nine years old. <laughs> It's, you can't, yeah. it's like, I'm an adult now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck me, I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah. um, well, your first game, you, you were kind enough to let me know what that was. It's the 6th of March, 1993, West Ham 3, uh, Wolves 1. Trevor Morley, Julian Dix and Matty Holmes got the goals for West Ham after Steve Bull had given Wolves the lead. More significantly, first West Ham game uh, after Bobby Moore's death. He died from cancer a couple of weeks earlier. Were you at the game because it was Bobby Moore's death? Did your dad want to take you for that reason? Yeah, I think it was a combination of me really wanting to go. It's a weird thing. Like I didn't actually think it was that game until you asked me what was your first game. Yeah. And I remember like three other games that season, but they were all after that point. And I thought, actually, I think I must have gone around Christmas, but looking at the fixtures, I think that was my first game. So it was a combination of just pressuring my dad and my uncle to want to go. And then that, that big moment, then wanted to go up there to kind of pay their respects. My uncle told me actually that day was um, the first time he'd uh, bought a ticket in years. Like he must have been like 40 by that point. But yeah. he, like my dad had sorted the ticket. So he would always like bunk in somehow. I don't really know about them. But I think the South Stand, the, the, there was a corner of the South Stand, the East Stand that he apparently used to be able to jump over under the gates. But he was doing that in his late 30s. So what a sight that must have been. Amazing. Like a hole in the fence. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, it's almost kind of... Um, it feels like West Ham fans almost have a spiritual relationship with Bobby Moore. Like yeah. it's not, it goes beyond being one of their best ever players. You know, he's almost sort of deity in a way that I think the only yeah. other examples I can equivalents I can think of perhaps are George Best at United, uh, Kenny Dalglish maybe at Liverpool. I think more sort of similars maybe Diego Maradona at Napoli. I mean, what are the stories you were being told about Bobby Moore when you were growing up? Yeah. It's- it's a weird, like, I don't actually remember. I mean, you just, you, he's, he's held up like a god, as yeah, you say, yeah, yeah. in East London. And my uncle would have saw him play. Both my uncles have seen him play. And just the stories about how good he was. And, you know, he would, like, one of the first things I learned about West Ham is like, you know, we won the World Cup in 1966. We had the captain, <laughs> two of the goal scorers. Like, it was, we, we did that. And then he talked about, you know, the European, I, I can't remember, I think the fact is, the stat is 
first English club to win a European Cup or the first British something like that when we won the European Cup Winners' Cup in uh, 65 and that you know winning the FA Cup in 64 um, just that he kind of led that team and captain England and so like lifted the World Cup for his country mm. and here we are sat in a pub beer garden in 2020 he's still the only man to have done yeah. that but then like in later years I, I did we made um, I used to do a West Ham fans podcast called Knees on my Brown with my friend uh, James Longman and we made we did a documentary episode about Bobby Moore. So I just read everything I could possibly get hold of, and um, spoke to a few of his friends, like Jonathan Pierce um, and his biographer. Read all the books, did a few interviews, and it's like you really build out this picture of a man. It, it's such a tragic story because of what happened to him after his career yeah. ended. It was, but you know, nineties match amb- ambassadors weren't really a thing. But you think. He lifted the World Cup for England, you know, wiping the mud off his hands when he goes to shake the hand of the Queen. Um, all that, the terrific service he offered West Ham and England over the course of his career. And then as you move into the 70s and he had that spell with Fulham, he, he slips into retirement, has a horrible spell as a manager of Oxford and then just gets involved in a bunch of failed businesses. Um, there's a club, I think they've just reopened it in Chigwell called Moros. He was really invested in a nightclub and lost a lot of money there and then ends up just kind of doing co-commentary on Capital mm. Gold. And it's at that moment, was it, yeah, 93, that he dies. And it's just so sad because he kind of just just almost disappeared right at the yeah, end. Yeah. And he was just like this absolute legend. But I really do think if he'd have lived like just five more years, you football and the, this kind of heritage we've got, it would have come back to him. And, you know, he, there's no doubt when you look at the players in the 66 team who have been knighted since, the knighthood was coming to him 100%. Oh, yeah, and an yeah. ambassadorial role for the FA was coming to yeah. him and definitely for West Ham. You know, he had, a, he had the stand named after him just a couple of years after he died. All that would have happened whether or not he died or not. And it's a shame he died as a co-commentator for Capital Gold when he should have been held up as, correct, quite rightly, one of the leading lights in, in the history of English football. Yeah. Has anyone around the time... The early nineties, West Ham, Terry Brown, whoever said why they didn't make more, Bobby Moore. I know you said the ambassadors didn't exist, yeah. but you could still play a role. You feel, in some yeah, form. it's a weird one. You don't forget we were rubbish yeah. in the nineties. Like true. we true. were really rubbish. <laughs> I mean, we were we were going up and down. Like we yeah. finished third in eighty six. Then after that, we we get relegated twice, promoted twice. I mean, the, the attendances were like twenty thousand a week. Like an ambassador, there was no hospitality. I don't think there's no. Mm. There was, I don't know what an ambassadorial role would have mean, but I don't. I mean. By the time Terry Brown took over, in fairness to him, Bobby Moore at least didn't have to pay for a ticket. There's these stories of like the, the Kearns family who who owned West Ham before Terry Brown, like making Bobby Moore, making Bobby Moore buy a ticket to come into the games and stuff like that. So I think certainly he was held up to a much higher regard than he had been previously, but nowhere near the level that he would be now if he were yeah. around. I grew up on stories of Bobby. Actually, my dad roomed with him as a young professional. Whenever I probably stepped the wrong side of the line as a youngster, he used to remind me of how Bobby was as a person and how he would have behaved. I remember stories of how he, uh, he kept his room so neat and tidy. He was a complete gentleman. Stories of him training the day after a game, coming in on a Sunday morning and training extra. Stories of him dealing with people, whether it was in a restaurant or you know, outside of football, I mean, because obviously he was a huge star at the time. Um, so for me, I'm very aware of, of the person he was, and it, it really made an imprint on my mind and mentality growing up. It's how you should behave, and that's how you should, you know, go about your job. So I, I was very proud actually when I, I got older, and my dad said about my career, and said actually there are elements of Bobby that I can see in you about how you carry yourself. And for me, that was a huge thing. And you know, you try to stick to the right values, and I think Bobby was the epitome of that. 
Well, it's interesting to say about the nineties. I mean, if he had lived to the summer of '96 when the Euros were on, oh, can you imagine? I mean, it sort of the, the fever that, that gripped the country then. You know, the the cap, the only World Cup winning captain of England would have just been. I mean, he would have just been wheeled onto the pitch before the you, Germany game, wouldn't he? Probably. You think as well, he would probably hand over the trophy, wouldn't oh, he? God, like, yeah. he would have been next to the Queen. Yeah. You look at what Beckenbauer means to the Germans. Yeah. You know, I don't know what Beckenbauer meant to the Germans in '93, but football just wasn't this polished entertainment industry it is now. Yeah. It, was, it was still like a rough and ready game. It didn't have much organisation. There was no, not much of the show business that like, Sky would eventually offer. So. Oh, man, you've got yeah. so much we missed out on. Like Bobby Moore in, in Euro 96, that's just an, like, what very a nice. thought. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, speaking about Upton Park, um, so actually, no, let's go back to that game first, the, the West Ham Wolves game. So how old would you have been in March 93? Nine. Nine. So do you remember much from the game? Quite a young age to go to football. All the time. Um, I just remember the excitement. I just remember the roar. When you hear your first goal, it's football fan, it really sticks yeah. with you, the roar after that first goal. I think we were, it was um, it was sold out that day, but I think back then the capacity would only be in about twenty six thousand, and we were sat in the the old West End lower, which probably was close to kind of seventy years old at that point. So it was quite a rickety stadium, but we kind of boxed in, and it was just like the sound of that first goal was just it just really stuck with me. Oh. I remember, did you say David Speedy scored that? I was going to say no. Uh, it was so Steve Ball gave Wolves the lead, and then Trevor Morley equalised. Julian Dix put you guys 2-1 up with a penalty and then Matty Holmes got the third I think Morley scored from a header with a header from a, from Holmes's cross I think yeah, yeah, I watched yeah. it on YouTube I've forgotten, oh. forgotten the order of the goals <laughs> and the nature of them, but I'm pretty sure that's how it happened yeah yeah yeah, yeah. God. I've met all those footballers apart from Matty Holmes I've got to tick him off the list yeah. but the first time I met Trevor, Trevor Morley was my idol as well because he you know he was a, a big well, after Julian Dix left. There was only Trevor Morley, and he was such a fantastic centre forward. Scored goals. I had like the shirt on the back, uh, and then um, occasionally I'll do like match day hosting at West Ham. So it'll involve me going to like a lounge and just talk, talking mm. with a footballer and just re- asking them about their time at the club. And um, Trevor Morley lives in Norway now, so it's rare that he comes over. Yeah, yeah. I came in and they were like Trevor Morley. You're going to interview Trevor Morley in such, such and such a lounge. It was an, an evening kickoff, and it may have been against Spurs. And I was like, great, Trevor Morley, scrambled down my questions. And I met him and I thought, it's been a bit, been a bit weird. It was all like just mumbling answers and stuff like that. And then it got on the stage and then like Ian Bishop turned up and they were like big mates. They came and hugging on the stage and it turned out Trevor Morley and a bunch of the others had started drinking at 10 a.m. that morning. <laughs> and he was just like absolutely smashed by the time. And I didn't clock until the interview was done. It's like, met my hero. He's been on an all-day bender. And That's after fine, 10 yeah. hours of drinking, I did a Q&A with him. Yeah. Be awful if he's being rude, if he's drunk. No, That's just... So is that 92, 93 team, the way you talk about it, sounds like they re- re- mean a lot yeah. to you. They're sort They're of your favourite team. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah massively. Yeah, so who I else is in that team? Dix, Kevin Keegan, uh, Kevin Keane, sorry, uh, yeah. not Kevin Keegan, that'd been good. Uh, <laughs> Mad Dog, Martin Allen, yeah. Cl- uh, Clive Allen, uh, Mark Robson, uh, yeah, Ludo, like I said, Steve Potts is in there. Just great. Like, But the thing that I love about them was really not down to them, but the fact our opposition was inferior most of the time. We'd just come out of the Premier League, we had Billy yeah. Bonds as manager. It was like, we were a top level. Like, the only reason we were getting relegated in those, like, those late 80s, early 90s was just because we're like, just stupidity. It's mad that we went down because we're like, even the game we went, when we went down in 92, a few weeks, like weeks before we went down, we beat Man United at home 1-0 when they're chasing the title and outplayed them. Yeah. It's just like, why? Like, this is such a thing with West Ham. It's like, what? How, why do we lose to the rubbish teams and we can just turn it on against the, the good teams? Yeah. It's like we are a good team. It's just, like we're just so inconsistent. 
But yeah, I just love that 92, 93 team. When you first get into football, and this is a, another great thing about Quickly Kevin, like you remember those games yeah. so much. And I read recently an interview with Jamie Carragher where he was saying like, he could tell you all the results from all the fixtures in like those early 90 games because he was just addicted to it. But he said, if you, if you ask me like the result of a game from the last 10 years of my career, I probably couldn't remember. Yeah. But it's just there's something about being a kid and like that, it being growing up around that for people our age, yeah. you just, you know, those games inside out. Yeah. yeah you sort of lo- you used to log them in your mind though, didn't you? Like I used to take pride of knowing like every Liverpool result from like the 94, 95 season, whereas now. I just haven't got the time to try and memorise every game from the 2017-18 season. Um, It's interesting you say that about, yeah, because you were beating, because you you know, the the, the opposition was so inferior and you're winning so much. So it's something I'll ask you later, but I'll ask you now because it it fits in so well. I mean, during your, sort of, the meat of your time sporting West Ham, you've you've been relegated twice in 03 and 011. And I actually wonder, maybe incredibly patronising here saying this, but when you go down, if you actually enjoy it more, because, I mean, I, I just checked, the, so the 2011-2012 season when you were in the Championship and then you came back up via the playoffs, you won 24 games that season. So what season was that, 2011-2012? 11, 2012, yeah. Have you got the draws on there? I haven't got the draws. It was an insane amount of draws. We lost only like two or three games, yeah. but we drew like an ungodly amount of games. And I think <laughs> we went on a run of 11 draws in a row or something really? mad like that because we finished third yeah. we actually had to come up through the playoffs in the end Blackpool in the final Blade, yeah. Blackpool, yeah Blackpool yeah. in the final so like to answer your question and like, and um, I'll just say Ricky, I've heard Ricky Hatton say that he preferred Man City when they were like relegation for he doesn't like this now because it's like he doesn't like the pressure of winning every week but for me I hate getting relegated championship football I cannot stand it and I know like the objectively the fan thing the objective fan thinks it's fantastic but the pressure I feel when West Ham are in the championship is not enjoyable like when we're in the championship we have to get promoted because I want us to be on match today I want us to have good players I want us to have a, a full stadium when we're in the championship it's an that everything is negative and if we if West Ham win a game in the championship, I'm not ha- I'm not happy because that's just, that just levels me out. I don't get enjoyment from mm. winning those games. Like we beat, I don't know, whoever, Rotherham at home. I don't enjoy that because it's like, we should win that. If we draw it, I'm like, we've dropped two points. Yeah. And if we lose, I cannot stand it. And it's like, But when we're in the Premier League, I just want us to stay up every year. And it's quite an achievable aim. So actually, I'm a mu- my life, everything is much more relaxed when we're in the Premier League. So I don't have to... I don't worry, I don't have week-to-week stress. We just need to get to 40 points. Yeah. So I massively prefer West Ham in the Premier League. And actually, the only stress I get from football now is around about February to May when we haven't got 40 points yet. Yeah. Where it's a season-long stress of needing to pick up points yeah. every week. It's, just, it's not for me. It's no life. No, that makes sense. <laughs> That's fair enough, yeah. I mean, it's 24. I was, yeah, in my head, it's like, well, you've had 24 happy not actually Saturdays because you've got happy, weekends. Happy is very generous. Yeah, but the way you're describing <laughs> it, they're just sort of neutral Saturdays, yeah, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so yeah, just going back to um, Upton Park, I mean, it's one. It's genuinely one of my favourite grounds, well, it yeah. was one of my favourite grounds to visit and I think it's because of the, the geography of it. It is really unique for anyone who hasn't who hasn't gone. I mean, I used to get off at Upton Park Tube and you come out and you turn right to go to Upton Park and it was but very different to any other ground I've ever visited where you basically you just dropped into like a really bustling yeah. typical London road 
on one hand there's loads of people doing the match day thing of having a pint outside the ground getting a hot dog all that stuff taking their sons to the merchandise shop or whatever and then the other is people just shopping <laughs> yeah. and in particular if, I'm, if I've got this right so on the, you know you turn right to go to the park yeah. and on the left there's just loads of Indian shops yeah, yeah, there's loads yeah. of women in saris buying <laughs> yeah, stuff yeah. and it was just a sort of mad scene but it was, there was kind of beautiful harmony to it and, and obviously it was home for you but I wonder if you sort of appreciated I don't know what your route was Sopton Park but how unique and how kind of beautiful that was that you had that blend happening every time you went to the game yeah my relationship with Upton Park really evolved over the years because when I was obviously like nine ten years old my dad would drive me down there A406 and then cut into Barking so you'd drive down Barking and then we would park behind like the East End and run along the little alleyways the little rat runs into the stadium we'd come up behind like the East End and night games you would see the lights like kind of coming across all these tower blocks and kind of like uh, like the, the, the double-story houses, and you pick up your program for a little guy in a dark alleyway, and then get into the ground. And then as I kind of got older, I'd get the tube into games, and you get that different experience, like you just said, when you come along the kind of fish market or whatever it was, and then down Green Street, and then you turn left. And then getting older, as I got into my thirties, and like my mates, we would just go, you know, go to pubs, and you'd get into the Black Line in Plasto, and get off at of different areas around it, and the Duke of Edinburgh and the Central and all these amazing pubs and really kind of soak up the atmosphere. And then if you win, just spend the rest of the afternoon in like <laughs> bar, like Plaster or whatever, yeah. drinking in the pubs and then head into London at 11. I've just like had such a, a... My relationship with it all changed over time. But it, what, I, what I really felt about the kind, the kind of move, what I, what I didn't realise until relatively recently, is that I, didn't go, I never went back there until a bike ride in the middle of lockdown. So when we left Upton Park, that was it. I never, I never went back mm. there. And going, going back there and seeing it now, you remember how much that kind of, the character of that particular era, area, area sorry, and that era meant to, to, to West Ham fans, how much of our kind of West Ham culture was tied up in that, that area and, and the pubs and that. And it, it's, it's evolved now and it is different. And I'm sure the kids coming through today are going to build new memories. But it was just an amazing, it was an amazing place. And one of the things, another thing about, I like about the 90s, which I've talked about before, is grounds in like residential yeah, areas yeah. <laughs> like and the, the way you can see that a stadium which is literally built into that yeah. area and the houses have built organically yeah. around it over like a hundred years well, it was like house 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 shop house shop shop house massive football stadium, <laughs> shop, shop, <laughs> yeah house, yeah yeah i mean it's just crazy i know <laughs> i know i like yeah and it, it, you're not going to get a state like <laughs> No one's building stadiums like that anymore. <laughs> no one's going, can we just put a 40,000 seat stadium to the end of your road, please? Yeah. It's such a shame. Because they're, they're just the, the grounds of character, like Selhurst Park. Like, I love yeah. going there, like all those old school grounds. They have so much character that you don't get with the newer yeah, grounds. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I totally agree. I, I, yeah, Selhurst Park's another one I love visiting. You just get yeah, the bus, get off. I don't know, what that, don't know what that road is, but the way I used to get, yeah, just get the bus off and then it's just kind of behind the road. It's just, you go up this road and it just suddenly yeah. there's a football stadium. It's amazing. Yeah. So what was your, what's, so you touched on it there, what was kind of your match day routine? Did you, when did you get a season ticket, if you had one at all? Yeah, I had, to, I had season tickets on and off. Like I went to university in East London, so I was, I've always been in the area. I've gone through phases of having season tickets and not. So 2002, 2003, when we got relegated, had a season ticket then, but then kind of got a half-season ticket because I was just so depressed about the amount of players we'd sold. <laughs> got a half-season ticket then, and then kind of a mid-noughties, went back. I've kind of, yeah, I've gone back and forward, but now I'm a, a match-day presenter at the stadium. Of course, yeah, yeah. So actually, I'm uh, on the payroll and have an official capacity there now. So my match-days are completely different now. So like I said, we're doing Q&As before the game, and then... Um, interviewing players on the pitch running those absurd half-time competitions uh, and, and then just sitting in the press box the rest of the time yeah. 
but um, I still love it. It's still it's still amazing. What's the chicken run? The chicken run was actually where I had my last season ticket. And actually, in my garden, 100 metres from here, there is my seat from the chicken run in my back garden. And my missus insists we bin because <laughs> it's uh, gathering a lot of us. I bought this weird. I've seen some people do really great things with their seat that they to- took from yeah. Upton Park. But I constructed, like, or my dad helped me construct a little kind of uh, some iron around it to sew there because it's just the plastic bit. So it's not an actual seat. Yeah, yeah. So that sat in the garden. But it's like, what do you do? It just looks absurd. <laughs> so it just gathers rainwater all year round. It's gone a bit mouldy, but the chicken run was it the um, was the east stand, and the east stand was like built in the sixties to replace a stand that were earlier had like chicken wire down the front. Oh, okay. To stop people running onto the pitch, yeah. and so it was an old kind of wooden stand. I think the original east stand, but when the east stand was re- rebuilt in the sixties, they still called that lower tier of the east stand, uh, which was only probably like five or six rows back. They called that the chicken run, and it used to be quite the quite an intense place for. Uh, when it was all standing on that lower tier and the, the pitch at Upton Park before when they built the new West Stand, they moved the pitch like 10 metres away from the East Stand. But originally in those early 90s, like 92, the pitch is right next to the East Stand. So much so that when players are taking throw-ins, you can see fans like slapping the player yeah. on the back. Like it's so tight. You can so, see that. Sorry, to say you can see that. if you, you I found the Wolves game on YouTube. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's unbelievable how close the fans are. Yeah, to the yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, that's what you want from an yeah, inter- yeah, yeah. I've like, always thought... If you could design a ground now, wouldn't you make it... Like People always got about like uh, lots of leg room for the supporters yeah. and a big special ground. Why not make like the most intimidating, like fucked up ground yeah, possible? Yeah. Re- make it really steep. Make it like an inch from like the touchline. Make yeah. it feel like an absolute cauldron. That's what Upton Park was. And that's why people go on about like the kind of nights under the lights and all that. But the, yeah, the East End lower tier, the chicken run was like, you could, the, play, the fans could touch the players in yeah. the back. And Frank McAvenny always tells stories about like he always liked to wind up opposition. He would like barge them into the chicken run and like they'd, they'd just get assaulted yeah, basically yeah, yeah. by the fans. Yeah, so it's so intimidating. So that's your, your, where your last season ticket. Yeah, yeah. season ticket. Yeah, down by the um, the Bobby Moore end, the, the lower tier. Well, let's talk about the Harry Redknapp years because I'm guessing they're probably the most. I mean, you described it earlier almost as rock and, the rock and roll yeah. years, and it must have been uh, probably the most exciting time. Um, Maybe the happiest time of your time sporting West Ham. I mean, in between 97 and 2000, you finished 8th, 5th and ninth. Yeah, mad. So really good finishes. I mean, fifth, I think West Ham finishing 5th with all due respect. It's pretty <laughs> remarkable. Uh, yeah, did you just want to talk about that time and kind of your memories yeah. of it and how good it was? There's some mad stat about our top half finishes in the Premier League era. I don't think we've done it very often. I'm, I'm making it up. But maybe, maybe we've done it five times and everyone was responsible yeah. for like four of those. Um it was just an ama- it was just an amazing era to live through the the, pl- the quality of the players that was coming through the academy, but also the players he was signing too. Yeah, um, like you know what he did with Di Canio, he t- like he would just he had this uncanny ability to find a bargain. As much as he hates that reputation as a wheeler dealer, yeah, yeah. he could he could cra- grab players from anywhere. Like Igor Stimac, I remember him doing really well for mm. us when he snatched Hugo Porfirio on loan. He was just able to find a bargain and really kind of he embraced um, the foreign signing to to, to kind of differing levels of success there's a period where he bought like Paolo Futre who retired after three games and Dimitrescu whose work permit ran out <laughs> Radachoyu who uh, refused to go to Stockport because his missus wanted to go to yeah. Harvey Nichols so like but for every one of those you had a kind of Paolo Di Canio as well so he was able to combine these amazing academy players coming in with some amazing uh, foreign talent that he was able to pick up as well and the combination of all that with real tactical now that he proved again and again in his career amazing man management just turned it into an, like a squad that was just consistently pulling it out of the bag but the reason like we could have really kicked on I think but have you ever looked have a look for that era it's like our home form is 
amazing and our our waveform is terrible like throughout that era of a few exceptions we just seem to really turn it on at Upton Park it's not about that team that that home games but we never really nailed it away from home and that's why I think we never really kicked on beyond fifth yeah we got a famous away winter that time the the United FA Cup game yeah the United FA Cup game were you there by any chance no right so I was offered my uncle was like right we've got we did United in the cup and uh He's like, got, got, us, got us tickets, do you want to go? And I said, no. I was like, no, nah, I don't really, I don't think I don't think we're going to do it. It's on TV as well. Yeah, I'll just Sunday watch it on TV be, yeah, <laughs> Sunday. Like, we'd have to get out. I, can't, I think it maybe it was a midday kickoff or something. Somewhere ridiculous. Like that, yeah, yeah. And it's like, we'd have to leave at 5 a.m. I was like, I'll watch it on TV. And so, watch the TV. One of the, the most amazing wins of the early noughties. So, the follow, I think it was a year or two years later, we drew United in the cup again. And he was like, do you want to go? I was like, well, I'm not missing this. Like, we've got a bit of form here. We're going to turn <laughs> it around. And that was the game we lost 7-1. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, that was the Gary Breen game, they call it. We yeah. were just abysmal. That, yeah. that win at Old Trafford, that's the one where Bartes raises his hand. Yeah, yeah. To, I don't know if he's trying to trick lines. I think he thought Di Canio was offside. I think he was trying to trick Di Canio. When you look yeah. at Bartes, he, he like, loves a mind game like yeah, that, yeah. doesn't he? But I mean, the, the funny thing about that um, that that um, United game when we we won one nil was a few months after we sold Rio Ferdinand. But if you have yeah. a look at the starting lineup of that game, I think you've got you've got Lampard in there, Joe Cole's playing, Michael Carrick, and it's like on paper you look at the names and you go, West Ham were the better team. Like yeah. on paper, Di Canio up front, Freddie Canuto finished um, top scoring the league like two years later. That team was a it deserved to win. Yeah. If anything, you look at that West Ham team that year and go, you underachieved because. You know, despite having all these top half finishes, on paper you went yeah. on to do loads. Yeah. And we could have done so much more. Canute feels like quite an underrated player in Premier League history. From my memories, he was just really good, but no one... No one yeah, yeah. Where's, he, where's his kind of standing in West Ham? Um, well, I think he, the, the, his standing is coloured by the fact that he handed a transfer request as yeah. soon as we, like, well, not as soon as Jermaine Defoe, which is 24 hours, but within <laughs> that summer, and, and yeah. then to leave and go to Spurs. Of course, people yeah. loved him. I remember his day, Freddie Canute's debut for West Ham. Something I'd never, he was on loan, I think, and he his debut. I can't remember. I think he scored like two and set up one or something ridiculous. He played amazing, and the fans, everyone up to part, was singing Fred um, Harry sign him up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like I've never heard of it like that. So Harry, right, and then the, around that time, um, Reebok had an advert which was a uh, belly's gonna get you. So the, where the fan, the chant became Freddie's gonna get you, <laughs> and we loved Freddie Canuto, but yeah. then he left to Spurs. And when we got promoted, so we went down in 2003, and then by the time we come up in 2005, I think yeah, it was, yeah. we were linked with him. And, and um, another one of those infamous um, kind of manager fan evenings, we were linked with Canute in the press, and Pardew was our manager, and, and the fans stood up and said, you cannot sign Freddie Canute after what he'd done for us. And Alan Pardew, wanting to kind of ingratiate himself with the fans, went, all right, we're not going to sign Freddie Canute. The fans have spoken. Following season, he was top scorer in the league. Oh, so another reason not to listen to us yeah. fans. Yeah, which uh, goes against the grain in this podcast, obviously, yeah. in which <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to promote yeah. the wisdom yeah. and listen for the nostalgia, <laughs> not for the advice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you touched on it there. I just, yeah, I just want to come on to it. Is there are some mad stories uh, about uh, re- regarding Harry, some of Harry's foreign transfers? So I think the top four. You, you mentioned one of them there. Paolo Future, oh, two of them actually. Paolo Future losing his shit over not getting a number 10 shirt. Florian Radichoy going to Harvey Nichols when he should have been playing an FA Cup tight. Stockport. You then got Marco Bugas running off to live in a caravan. And Javier Margas um, escaping from his hotel room or hotel in Stansted yeah. to run off back to Chile. Yeah. I mean, at the time and even now, are you sort of laughing at those? Or are you thinking, how the fuck are we not doing our due, due <laughs> diligence here? Well, I was, I'll just comment on Margas. Like, he's a Chilean... Um, 
He's, yeah, he's married into Chile, Chilean royalty now, haven't yeah. him? I guess what I was told, one of those rumours. But you think about like players like from like Margas, for example. I think we signed him off the back of a really good uh, night, France '98 for Chile, and I think oh, him, yeah, he was good now. Actually, I think was, him yeah, in particular, yeah. Yeah. and he came over, and there was like there was no player care in like when you join in West Ham in '98. It's like there's your house in Waltham Abbey be here at these times like no one helping with the English, like the language no one helping him get a car or a house kind of like get, getting his family over you are left alone you can't even speak the language so it's like these are impossible circumstances for a player and so when someone like Margas comes over in 98 and fails to settle you're like well of course like, I couldn't yeah. go to Ch- I couldn't go to <laughs> Chile and like live Javier Margas's <laughs> life now like it'd be impossible yeah, so true. you think about that in, in 98 it kind of it kind of makes sense so I think there was a lot of drama with Margas he wasn't happy he wanted to go home he, like I don't think his family had come over didn't like it didn't feel supported went home they kind of left him here he was losing his mind and then mm-hmm. like Peter Story and Harry Redknapp really wanted to make him stay came to these crunch talks at the, um, the Marriott and Waltham Avenue and um, he managed to get the window open got a taxi legged it back to Chile and the rest is history I've literally never seen again yeah <laughs> crazy um, talked about Paolo Di Canio as well is yeah. it fair to say the Wimbledon goal in 2000 is the best West Ham goal yeah. by West Ham player you've ever seen were you there yeah I was there I was behind yeah. that goal so at that point I was in the uh, family stand I think so I was 15, 16 we were in the uh, the centenary stand up uh, right above that goal mm. just unbelievable that, that just sums Di Canio up I, 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 I chatted to um, Trevor Sinclair the other week and I also said to him like Great assist, actually. No yeah. one really like Cheers, that. Actually. That, that yeah. assist from Sinclair is like a 30, 40 yard ball right across the pitch. flat as well, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Like the way the ball, like there's no spin on that yeah. ball when it comes to Canio's foot. And the, the finish is just exquisite, isn't it? I'd like, isn't, he scored a few goals like that that season. There's one against Arsenal as well. But it's like, he's like an artist. I've read this, um, have you read Zlatan Ibrahimovic's book? No. He said something in there that really charmed with me when we think about that goal. He's like, he um, he imagines everything in his head. Like, so if he's about to score a goal, he, he imagines what it would look like. He's like, he described it like a, like, like painting a picture. He kind of like, like he has a vision of what he's going to do. And I think that's what like Decanio was doing. Like it's art almost. It's yeah. like he's imagining like I, that scissor kick is like we haven't. I, I don't think we've seen a goal like it since. I don't think I have. Before I think he's just since. on another yeah. on another yeah. level. Like that scissor kick, the balance, the poise, the way he curls into that final yeah. corner. I think another thing that contributes to a great goal as well is how, what the goalkeeper does. And I think Neil Sullivan just like outstretched arm, just yeah. like a centimeter away from touching the ball. It's just perfection. Went wide nicely. By Mark Vivian Foet, Sinclair's cross over Cunningham. Di Canio! I do not believe that! That is sensational! Even by his standards! Take a bow, son. Take a bow. You are not going to see a better goal than this. Great ball from Foy. Even better ball from Sinclair. But that is just sensational. Outside of the right foot. He's off the ground with his both feet when he makes contact. Look at him. Up he goes. Oh, that is quite sensational. What a magnificent goal. A moment of striking perfection from Paolo Di Canio. So, we will come on to this, but you have picked um, an unusual 
uh, 11 for us, which is not your all-time West Ham 11. You've done a, a falling in love with 11, as you describe it. Yeah. Now, De Canio's not in that team. And I wonder, is that A, because you've never met him? Because these are players you fall in love with having met. Yeah. It's A, because you've never met him, or B, you have met him. And, he, <laughs> and he's and fascist. He, and he's a nut who's got really dodgy <laughs> political views. Which one is it? <laughs> uh, I met De Canio when I was like uh, 17 in his pomp. And I yeah. had his autobiography in my school bag. I went to school in uh, Woodford Green. And um, I think there was a like a, a, a garage at the end of the road. I can't remember if it was a Jaguar garage or something. And he was just out there with a mate. And I had his book in my backpack. And I was like, oh, Paolo. And he very kindly gave me, uh, he autographed the autobiography, which I've since lost, which is a real tragedy. But his autobiography was fantastic right up until the last chapter, which is dedicated to how good Mussolini was. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's not good, <laughs> is it? Like, I didn't really know who Mussolini was. But then I was like, <laughs> this sounds quite interesting. And then you grow up and you're like, oh, no. Oh no! But I haven't met Paolo <laughs> Di Canio, and, and we'd, we'd like to. I'd love to have him at West Ham, but I think he um, he's on. He wants quite a bit of money to kind of turn up to things these days. So he'd be a good quickly Kevin guest as well. Yeah, he? that's a good shout actually. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm guessing a lot of the players you pick, and we will come on to them. Honestly, we will do at the end of the podcast. Um, a lot of the players you've met that you fall in love with. Has yeah. that been through work, through work? Yeah, through went through West Ham, and then running a fan podcast before that, meeting yeah. a lot of these kind of players I grew up idolising, and just being struck by their character and going like, actually this person's a top man yeah. so I picked an 11 exclusively of people I've met after they've uh, finished yeah. playing football or, or otherwise and just thought these are great people yeah we'll come on to that um, as I said we will honestly we will um, and I'm just curious actually working for the club how that's changed your relationship with West Ham you're sort of obviously you've seen things from the inside now has that made it has that made you fall in fall in, fall in love with the club more or maybe even a bit less because you can kind of see the mechanics behind yeah. it yeah I don't know I think I think one of the big things about being a fan is you like you always like to believe that the mechanics are really well oiled, or you always like yeah. to believe that like your football club know what they're doing. So it is a very different perspective when you're on the inside and you realise it's just people making decisions, as yeah. is the rest of life. So it is, a, it is a very different perspective. I don't know if it's better or worse. But I'm certainly more informed than I was before, yeah. and that has good, good and bad with it. Because um, you do you hear you hear stuff about what's going on that you probably wouldn't here otherwise but ultimately I think it's just wonderful to be involved I think if someone else was doing the kind of things I'd do I'd be insanely jealous mm. and you forget that sometimes but it is an, it is an absolute joy to be involved with the club and, and to meet all these players and to like even be chatting to the first team and chatting to coaches and stuff like that and like feel like you're in within the fabric of the club now yeah. it's just I can't even I have to pinch myself I don't really I feel like it's someone else sometimes. The thing is, the way I've got involved is like been so organic from doing the kind of fan podcast that it transpired a lot of the hierarchy at the club were listening to. Oh, okay. And then when I decided to kind of pack it in to, to focus on quickly Kevin, the phone call come, come down and like just do Q&As in the lounges before the game and then doing Q&As in the lounges to doing video content for the, the club and then to, you know, doing match day presenting for them and just, and then also doing like hospitality evenings, corporate evenings for them and like hosting fan evenings and Q&As for the managers so uh, I can field questions like why isn't Scotty Canham in the first 11? <laughs> it's it happened He's 52, <laughs> that's why, Chris. It's happened so slowly so I'll go into that. I didn't, you didn't really notice. It didn't go from nothing yeah. to being involved. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes I sit back and go, wow, this is, this is mad. I'm like, so proud to be involved. Yeah, excellent. Well, I want to talk about life in London Stadium shortly. Before that, I just want to go back to last season, Upton Park, 2015, 2016. Mm. Um, fair to say, one of the most thrilling 
your time supporting the club. I mean, you've obviously got it's the last Upton Park. So there's all the romanticism around that, but you did really well as well. I mean, uh, well, you finished yeah. seventh, qualified for Europa League, and of course, Dimitri Payet as well. Dimitri Payet. Let's talk about Dimitri Payet. Dimitri Payet. Wow. I mean, a, West, a player for West Ham within the last five years got nominated for the Ballon d'Or. What world are we living in? That is unlike. Like, I can't believe that happened. He was unreal. But, you know, he, he was like, he was unreal. But the first half of the season, he was he was amazing, but not the, how he was in the second half of the season. You, you the way he just totally trans like yeah. he was good in the first half, but that second half he just ran away. He was just unbelievable. The way he was able to beat players. I mean, this just speaks for itself. But every time we got a dead ball towards the end of that season, everybody had their camera out and stayed. <laughs> when, when have you ever seen yeah, that? Yeah. And also, uh, like West Ham have an interesting history of FA Cup ties at Old Trafford. But I was there that day, the quarter final, when Payet, but uh, at the West Ham end, scored the opener in the second half, and it looked like we were about to get projected into the semi-final, a, a game in the neutral territory. That amazing Payet free kick, and it looked like it was too far out. And then you think about, you know, everyone talks about that season, but the following season, he was just as good the way he, he did this kind of Rabona assist for Mikel Antonio for a yeah. goal. And the goal he scored against Middlesbrough at the London Stadium yeah, is yeah. insane. Magnificent from Pyatt. Even better from Pyatt. It's brilliant from Pyatt. Can he finish? It's wonderful. West Ham level. Magnificent. A better goal in the Premier League this season. Goes past one defender, nothing's on. No runs. Goes past two defenders, still nothing's on. Goes past three, goes past four, and the fifth, and then reverses it back on goal. What a goal from Dimitri Payet. 1-1 West Ham. He's carrying him on his own at the moment. Just a, a tragedy that he left in the way he did and that he left altogether, really, because he would have been... He would have been a hero. Like, he, well, he, I mean, he was a hero for a, for a time, but, he, you know, he would have had a statue built of him. Yeah. But and that's the curse of a club like West Ham. It, like, we just never seem to be able to quite get up to that next level. We never... It goes back right... This isn't, you know, a modern thing. It goes right back to the 80s when we finished third in 86. There's probably just a couple of investments needed to get to that next level. But for whatever reason, circumstances always conspire against us. Yeah. But what a way to bow out of Upton Park. Were you at that United game? Yeah, I was at that one, yeah. the chicken run for that last oh, okay, game. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. But here's a controversial thing. We won that game 3-2. I would much rather, and I've had arguments with my West Ham mates about this, I'd have much rather beat United in the quarterfinal a few weeks earlier and lost our last game yeah. at Upton Park just to get to semi-final, get to Wembley. Because it's wonderful to have won the last game at Upton Park in that fashion. But ultimately, it didn't mean much. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, an FA Cup charge like that, I think... If we'd have knocked United out, I think that FA Cup was there for the taking. Who did you play in the semi-final, if you want to Man, I can't remember. It was United. Well, they beat United him. went on to win it. Yeah, they beat and Palace. We would have knocked it's the Pardew dance final, wasn't it? Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. Palace. Yeah, so we would have had Palace. Had Palace in the final, yeah. Come be, on, you'd we could have beaten that. We would have beaten that. Yeah. I'd much rather have won the FA Cup and left Upton Park yeah, yeah. than uh, to win the last game. But it was an, uh, an amazing carnival atmosphere. And the weeks ending up to the, running up to the last game of the season, me and my mates... Try to hit a different pub every week of the last every uh, the last few games, so yeah. we just get it all done. Um, it was just amazing, amazing time. Yeah. That's 2016. Do you miss Upton Park? Yeah, I do. I miss the character of it, but also I kind of I miss those times as well. I mean, I know it's only four years ago. Uh, I've got a kid now. I've got responsibilities, <laughs> and I miss that kind of the freedom of going out with your mates all day and yeah. kind of like the all day boozers and a lot of the pubs that are around there. You know, you just miss those times more than anything but you know 
the London Stadium is an amazing stadium, and and you've got different times now that I, you know, the the bars are better. <laughs> like yeah. those old bars were shitholes. Yeah. Like face it, and that's where a lot of the character came from. But now, if you go when you go to the London Stadium, we've got like there's boats that are there's boat bars, yeah. so you sit in a nice bar, bar and there's nice restaurants around, and there's there's yeah. still kind of weird little kind of art gallery places you can go drink at. It's a you know it's hack it's Hackney. It's, it's an amazing place. You've got the river down there, so it's different. It's not like I wouldn't say it's better or worse, but it's, it's different. And it, as long as you're with the same pals you've always been going up to part with, you'll have a similar experience. Yeah. I mean, I've been there as an away fan and as a journalist. I mean, this, as you say, aesthetically, it's really nice. The stadium mm. is really nice. The, the surrounding areas, it's been created for fans. It's got that fan zone feel, which is really good. Yeah. Um, I do think the track is an issue. Yeah. Um, the away end is mental as well. It's kind of broken in two. So it really loses something. When you're in the, you won't know, obviously, but when you're in the away end, I don't know. If, it's like yeah. a chunk. Of the, there's a bit yeah, of the front, yeah. and there's like a tarpaulin bit, yeah. and then there's the rest of it. And it really disconnects the wearing, which isn't great. Um, but the mood around it. I mean, you obviously you're saying you like it. You can see the benefit of it. But a lot of West Ham fans, I get the sense, don't enjoy life there. Yeah. Um, can no, you see that, that perspective as well? That's. T- I mean, I get it. I totally get it. It wasn't built as a football stadium. Yeah. There's no getting around that fact. And there are compromises that you wouldn't have at a football stadium, and people don't like that, and it's completely understandable. But we're here. We are, and yeah. I think. You know, there are changes being made to make it more accommodating for fans. They're just they're just redone the lower tier. It was down there a couple of weeks ago. It looks good. So they brought the lower tier much closer to b- behind the goal, which would make for more of an intimidating atmosphere. I was chatting to um, <laughs> Tommy Walsh of Ground Force fame. <laughs> he, <you> do. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, obviously a big West Ham fan, and he was uh, he was telling me. Uh, it's like we could do some building here. What they need to do is like uh, <laughs> is to dig down into the London Stadium and then build. Like he never uh, stops working, is he? He's got a day off. I think he's looking for a contract. Actually, <laughs> right. he said if you dig down the pitch at London Stadium, you could like something about the camber. He was saying like <laughs> you could make that pitch down and make it m- much more of a bowl. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many tickets you'd sell in the upper tiers, but <laughs> it's certainly a theory that Tommy Walsh has about how you can make it more intimidating. But I think you know, realistically, we're, we're probably we're probably here for another twenty five years. Yeah. But as we've seen, time flies. I mean, it's how many years since the 90s? Too long. Yeah. So it's too long. Uh, I mean, what is the general mood around the club at the moment? We finished 16th in the season. It's just gone. David Moyes yeah. is your manager, which is all right. You've got some good players, some slightly rubbish players. I mean, yeah. how do you sort of assess the mood around West Ham at the moment? I mean, if, if, if you chat to my mates, it's all, there's always a crisis. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the opinion I really value is the opinion of the players and uh, from what I've heard, everybody backs David Moyes. They, okay. they, there's real kind of like, he's seen as as a manager they all like and respect um, and they want to work hard for him. He's got, Moyes has got some really switched on ideas about scouting and the way analytics plays into recruitment and how he kind of makes decisions around which players to buy and, uh, and which players to sell. And I've seen, I think we've seen a bit of dividends from that, from the signing of uh, Bowen and Suchek. So, He's made, you know, the two jobs he's done for us when he kept us up in, what was it, like 2018, and the job he's done for us this season in keeping us up has been good. And I think he needs now a fair crack of the whip. The players seem to be with him. He's generated the right kind of results to keep us up. I'm, I'm quietly optimistic about where we can be. I just want us to finish in the top half. My, that's my kind of my dream, man. But like comfortably finish in the top half, maybe compete for Europe, seventh, sixth, under, you know, with the kind of... Um, I don't know, the, like, the organisation, the way it is at the moment, we should be punching up. We could be doing what Wolves are doing. But realistically, I just don't want to get relegated. Mm. Safe in, 40 points by March is where I'd like to be as a football club. You fucking hate the championship, don't you? <laughs> you really hate the championship. I don't, I don't enjoy it. 
And especially when you look at our fixture list this season, we play seven. We in our first eight games, we play the top seven from last season. Yeah, that's like tough. Yeah. So we need to pick up points. I real. Well, I don't. My worst case scenario for me is uh, being stressed. Yeah. All year, I'd like to pick some points. If we can get ten points by the end of September, October. Oh, sorry, probably end of October. That would be great. Yeah. What are the expectations from West Ham fans in terms of the style of play? Because as as outsiders, we we're sort of we get this sense that you know it's about you know the academy of football and the West Ham way, and you yeah. guys all want tiki taka Ajax from the 1970 style football. Is that a bit of a myth? I mean, would you would you be happy to sort of support kick and rush team if it meant you you won the FA Cup and got into Europe? I th- it's it's this. It's a great question. Josh uh, Woodicombe always says to me, like, there are a few clubs who mythologise about themselves as much as West Ham fans. And I think, you know, we've got that reputation because of how we talk about winning the World Cup in 66 and the academy and the the way we play football. I like going back to Bobby Moore, like reading about him, he was always on to Ron Greenwood, who was a manager at the time, to invest in, I think it was Dave McKay, or invest in tough football, like tough defenders, because he always thought we were too soft in the 60s. And I think he, he had a point, because although we won like European Cups and FA Cups, you look at our league finishes, that amazing team who won the World Cup and won all those... Uh, those cups never did well in the league mm. we were always finishing like 10th because we were always just soft like we can talk about like uh, passing attacking football but it has to be backed up by a defence who isn't leaking goals for fun so I think I, like, I've got probably more of a pragmatic um, opinion when it comes to how West Ham should play football the most I didn't really enjoy the criticism that Big Sam got when he was in charge around our style of play yeah. I never really thought it was long board so it was just sensible if you're under pressure as a fullback it's the same way you'd play your Sunday league you just boot it up the pitch that's just that's not long ball that's just like playing the odds or whatever and yeah. I know Sam Sam was keen on kind of tall strikers but you know I think Sam has demonstrated over the course of his career that he he works with the kind of ingredients he's got. And, uh, you know, in the championship at that time, after the folly of Avram Grant, we did, we weren't, like, blessed with bags of technical ability. Mm. So he found a way to win. And that's ultimately what you want from a football team. But, yeah, we are, as West Ham fans, we maybe we do mythologise about ourselves and we have a certain style of play we like to see. But... I mean, I'd love Klopp to come in. I don't know when Liverpool, when you're sick of him, if you fancy handing him yeah, over, that'd be lovely. I think, I think we have one more year with him and happily pass but, him on to West Ham. Maybe you, do a sort of noise, that'll go down well. <laughs> the red off emergency. I love the way Liverpool and City play football and I'd love for us to be able to, to do stuff like that. But I'm also realistic. Like we, we don't have those kind of budgets. We can't attract those kind of players to play that way. And so we're locked into, like, I find myself like just being locked into this pragmatism of let's, how do we grind out results? Yeah. How do we stay up? And maybe there is less enjoyment with that kind of philosophy. But I'd rather be in the Premier League playing really pragmatic football than being in League Two playing free-flowing passing football, winning 6-0 one week and losing 7-0 yeah. the next. Fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. Right, let's get on to your falling in love with eleven. So to stress, this isn't the best 11 players you've seen play for West Ham. These are 11 players that you've met and you've fallen yeah. in love with having as in the capacity of working West Ham and doing, and doing the podcast. So... Uh, the fans podcast that used to do. So it's a 4-3-3 formation in goal. Jimmy Walker, back four from right to left. Pablo Zabaleta, Anton Ferdinand, Christian Daly and Rufus Brevet. Three in midfield then. Jack Collison, Martin Allen and Steve Lomas. And up front, Carlton Cole, Andy Carroll and uh, Marlon Harewood. Um, I've heard of every player in that team except Jimmy Walker. I must admit, I had no <laughs> idea he was. So I did a bit of reading, and from what I can tell, he was uh, he was a key part of the team that got promoted in two thousand five. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. And he's also got the best front cover of an autobiography I've ever <laughs> really? seen. 
Uh, he's all rugby tied something like size matters or something like that because he's a he was a short goalkeeper. Oh, okay. I still think he's like six foot, but he is just an absolute character. People always talk about him as like being one of the best guys to have in a dressing room, and he's got. He is just one of these naturally brilliant, funny, energetic, charismatic people. And it just, like, it's always a pleasure to see him. Yeah. And when you look at he kind of came into the team. When we got promoted in 2005, Stephen Byward was our go- uh, goalkeeper. Jimmy Walker was brought in as a kind of a sub. And um, he was Walsall's goalkeeper for years. If you ever look at Jimmy Walker's uh, Wikipedia page, he played like something like 800 games for Walsall. Wow. Came to West Ham, big step up, and then eventually became our first choice. And was... Um, when we got promoted in 2005 in the playoff final, he started that day and then with about five minutes to go, came to catch a ball on the edge of the area, realised his momentum was carrying him out, planted his knee and just like twisted his knee yeah. in the most horrific way possible. Got carried out uh, and then but still managed to come on the pitch and got really drunk <laughs> in the celebrations <laughs> afterwards, even though his legs were covered in yeah. ice. But he's just a real wonderful, great, great goalkeeper and a great person. Yeah. Um, the only one of those players I've met myself is... Carlton Cole, who I spoke yeah. to after West Ham lost to West Brom at the Hawthorns in September 2008. I think it was Gianfranco Zola was in the stands. I remember that day. He was just about to become your manager and I was covering it for the Guardian. And we, we spoke, you know, you know, you go into the mix zone afterwards, you speak to players. And I remember uh, approached Carlton for, for, a, for a chat and he was lovely. He was really nice. But yeah. you do a podcast with him as yeah, well now, obviously. Yeah, do a podcast called uh, Footballer's Guide to Football where we yeah. kind of chat to... I'm fascinated by footballers, uh, what they were like at school. Yeah. So the really the footballers guide is all about that, just like learning what's it like to be that a world class footballer at like as a really young kid. What actually, how do you make your way through it? How do you negotiate all those hurdles and how do you figure out you're good and how do you deal with those kind of the, the early days of fame? So Carlton is just inspirational guy. People think, you know, and Carlton says this himself, like people think of him as a bit as a bit of a joke and he's just a bit of a, a lad because he's like He's one of the most normal footballers I've ever met in the modern era. He grew up in a uh, kind of council estate in uh, Brentford, West London, kind of with all that entails and grew up to become like, get uh, transferred to Chelsea and then ultimately make his way to West Ham, become like a, a celebrity and an England player, earn all this kind of Premier League money. And he's still a hilarious man. He's got his hands in all kinds of businesses. When COVID broke out, he'd invested in a company to... Um, it was like uh, like ke- like they spray chemicals on you to kind of like sanitize like Blimey. huge numbers clean, of people literally <laughs> cleaning up. <laughs> He's got somebody, and he had a brochure. He was like, "Have a look at this." And it's Bloody like hell. he wants to install it at like a football ground, so like you walk through it, and it just. Uh, sanitizes all the fans walking into into the ground and stuff like that but he's he's just he's got so much energy he's such a switched on person he's such a such a positive person to be around yeah. and he, he treats a lot of one of the few people i've met to really post positive memes and then live it too <laughs> <laughs> not not be a really negative person in real life yeah, yeah, yeah. he's uh, just a genuine like an amazing great guy really super positive and an amazing great to have a night out with yeah and you mentioned uh anton fernand before as well is there any sense of inferiority complex being Rio's brother from him? Uh, yeah, and it, uh, there's a great episode on that on the Footballer's Guide to Football and kind of um, growing up in Rio's shadow. Because I, I said to, uh, I actually chatted to Anton about this recently and I said, I always thought that it never bothered him. Yeah, because again, he had such confidence and you just like the way he walks into a room and all that. He su- makes such an impression on you and he, the way he talks, he, he's such a great guy to be around. So I never thought that the Rio yeah. Ferdinand, like being young, Rio's number brother, younger brother really kind of affected him at all but he said he since he told me it really did like being compared to him and you know his nickname at West Ham was uh, 3-0 
Because if uh, Rio Ferdinand had a new flashy outfit three weeks later, Anton <laughs> would have it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Or a new haircut. But yeah, you kind of like, it, it didn't occur to me that it was like that, but Anton kind of spoke in depth about that, about how, how tough it must have been. Like growing yeah. up, it's been in the same industry. And he said, he, he, he told me about, he made, when he made his debut, it was away to Preston. We'd just got relegated. This is the first game of the championship season in 2003, away to Preston, making his debut. And he made a mistake for Preston to score their first goal. And he, yeah. he, he said, it was in front of the West Ham away fans, and he could hear them going, he's no Ferdinand, oh. he's no Ferdinand. But again, he just said, like, just puffed his chest down, yeah. got on with it. Like, and that's the confidence those Ferdinand brothers have. They're, they, so like being in their aura, bring something out of you you can you can feel their electric personalities and confidence they're yeah. great great people now my, my younger brother can testify how hard it is <laughs> an older brother who's miles better than you <laughs> only joking of course um anyone else you want to pick out of that team that andy carroll probably yeah I'm like, Met, I'm spend a bit of time with andy curious carroll. about that because um he seems i don't know he seems like a tricky fella but is he really nice he's a, such a nice guy yeah. i think the, the thing i always think about with andy carroll and the kind of pressures of fame he once told me that he just like we were in some like fancy members bar like having a drink, and he said to me that um, he said I just love shithole pubs, <laughs> <laughs> and he goes and I can't I can't go to them, especially, yeah. especially you know in Can Newcastle imagine. I guess yeah, like he's yeah. he's seen as such a guy like the attention he draws everywhere he goes is, is on another level, and you, you yeah. realize you know he had a little spare in the England team, he was a big deal for us at West Ham for quite quite some time. The pressures that come with fame is, you know, he's just an ordinary lad. You know, he mm-hmm. never had a special upbringing. He wasn't necessarily geared for all this. And he, like, he's just such a nice, amazing, generous guy, lovely family. Like, and the pressures that the fame kind of introduce, and, and especially if you're, you're struggling with injuries and all that, it's a, it's a tough, tough spot to be in. But he's, he's just such a great guy. Also, the king of Newcastle. Mm. I've heard stories of people who've been in Newcastle on a stag to whatever. They said, Andy, I need a favour. Like, I'm here on a stag do. We don't know where we're going to go. There's like 15 of us. Andy Carroll's, give me 15 minutes. Suddenly, there's like three black SUVs outside oh, of wow. the Like, rope service into a club, everything wow. paid for. There's loads of stories yeah. like that about uh, Andy Carroll's generosity and just what a great guy is. Yeah. He's a top man. I can't speak highly enough of him. Um, the one I want to pick out is Pablo Zabaleta, only because it kills me that he's four years younger than me he looks like old enough to be oh, my man. older my older uncle yeah and he was in year seven when i was doing my gcse's it just blows my mind i mean he looks about 58 oh, man. you know <laughs> you, you know that's a, that was a real moment in my life when we signed him because i was like why the fuck are we signing this old wazak like he is so past it and i looked it up and he's like 18 months younger than yeah. me like, oh my him? god that a tough upbringing i don't know um obviously you must meet footballers too but Oh, in my head, footballers coming towards the end of their career are older than me, yeah. even though I'm now 37. So, like, <laughs> yes. when a player's like 33, I think he's older than me, yeah. even though he's not, <laughs> he's not like I'm four yeah. years his senior. And that is exactly yeah. like Zabaletta. Yeah. Like, signing, being, oh man, this guy's passed it. Why was I? It's like, whoa. But I always remember we had, you see, Ascalonian who played for us when he was four, Teddy Sheridan played for us when he was 40 yeah. as well. So, I've still got a bit of hope that maybe I could play for the last couple of seasons of yeah. my uh, career. But maybe not. Um, but I will say about Zabaleta, the reason he's in that list is I've done a few like hospitality events and corporate events with him, like through West Ham. And he's another one, he's, he's got this aura like Ferdinand yeah. has. And I'd, maybe that makes good pundits because when Zabaleta's done punditry, it's been amazing. It's been really good, yeah, yeah. He has that aura when he walks into, when he walks into a room and you just look at his physicality and the way he holds himself. He had, there's something about him, like how Dave Chappelle says about Rick James. 
Like he has like an aura. Yeah. He walks into a room and you can just feel there's some there's something about this guy yeah, yeah. and the way he talks and his control. He just he he knows what he is. He's he's a really impressive human being. Yeah. Excellent. Well, one fi- one final question for you, Chris. Um, if you could uh, go back in time to the first of January, nineteen ninety-eight, <laughs> only joking. One, one for quickly, Kevin. I was thinking, but... where do I know that from? <laughs> yeah, only joking. No, one final question. If West Ham could give you something in the next five years, and it has to be realistic, mm. so no four league titles and a forty-goal season from Mark Noble, yeah. what do you want them to give you? Can I have? We win the FA Cup. Of course, you can. I think that's realistic. Yeah, we yeah? didn't want, want the FA Cup, so why not? <laughs> I'd love us to win the FA Cup. That, that's now I've decided all I want out of my support in West Ham. Uh, if I can, if I can witness that in my lifetime, and I nearly did in 2006, thanks. It would have been without you know Steven Gerrard, yeah. a fluky hit. <laughs> if I could, if I could end my life having seen West Ham win the FA Cup and England win the World Cup, if that's allowed, that's that's the two things I want out of football. Nothing else. Decent answer. Chris Gull, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Thank you.